Toward the end of Dr. King's final sermon, he tells a story about a time he was in New York, in New York City in 1958, 10 years before. He was just 29 years old. He'd, he'd published his very first book, was at, a, at an autograph party, a signing party at a store in downtown New York. When a woman walked up to him, Dr. King was looking down, writing in someone's book, and this woman said to him, are you Martin Luther King? Without looking up, he said, yes, I am. At that point, she pulled out what looked like a letter opener, and she began to pound him in the chest with it. He recalls feeling a deep, searing pain in his chest as she pounded it, and finally, it stuck deep, deep in his chest, narrowly missing his aorta. In fact, he said later that if it had been just a fraction of an inch closer to his heart, he would have died almost instantly in his own blood. Later, he said, the New York Times reported, that if he had sneezed on his way to the hospital, he would have also lost his life. And then he noted that he received many letters after, while he was in the hospital, telegrams from around the world, leaders of various countries and important dignitaries and others, including the president and vice president of the United States of America, including the governor of New York. And he said that he didn't really remember the content of any of those letters except for one. It came to him from a young ninth grade girl, White Plains High School student. She wrote to him and said, and I'm paraphrasing, Dr. King, I'm a ninth grade student at White Plains High. I'm a white girl, not that that should matter. But when I read in the report of the New York Times that a sneeze would have killed you, I just wanted to write and say, thank God you did not sneeze. The, the crowd laughed too. They clapped. You listen to Dr. King's sermon on, on, online. You can find it easily by Googling it. You can hear the crowd laughing and cheering and applauding and, and, and earning him on. And then he, it, cheering him on. And then he said, then he said, I'm so glad I did not die also. Because if I had, I would not have been able to have been involved in all the work that we've done across the South, in Alabama and Mississippi and back over in Georgia, on into Louisiana and throughout the entire United States of America, he said in that sermon. He also went on to say that I would not have been able to tell you my dream, to share the dream, his I have a dream speech. It's a powerful sermon. I, I, I really think that if, if you can take the time to watch Dr. King's final sermon, you'll, you may even agree with me that as far as I'm concerned, it's the greatest sermon he ever gave. There's something about the way he delivered it. There's something about, about his, his passion and his, his bravery, frankly. Do you know that before he flew to Memphis on that day to, to preach, there was a bomb threat on the airplane that he was loaded onto. They had to keep the plane on the tarmac, unload all of the suitcases, go through every single suitcase to make sure there were no bombs or anything on board. He was constantly under threats and yet he delivered this sermon with power and emotion and wanted to be sure that everyone understood that he was not one to be afraid and he would move forward in, in faith. You know, I was thinking about that, that iconic speech, the other sermon that I would say was just, just as good as this one, the I Have a Dream speech. And I, I thought about this last week when our choir and that young man, Lamar Tate, recited that, that amazing speech. Were you, some of you there at our North Campus last week, did some of you hear that speech? Unbelievable, overwhelming. I looked out at the 915 crowd and I could see people wiping the tears from their eyes. At 11 o'clock, I, I did the same. And I looked out at the crowd, overflow, standing room only crowd, and I, I realized I couldn't see any faces because my eyes were full of tears. Why were we crying? What was happening in that moment? What, what was it we were feeling? I believe it's this. We knew 
when we heard those words. And, and the young man who recited them, he sounded eerily so much like Dr. King. It felt as though we were hearing them again for the first time. Why did we cry? Why were there tears? Because 50 years later, we still need those words. I know it's been a long time, and I know there's been a lot that's happened. I know our country has, has moved forward in, in ways that are amazing and wonderful, but 50 years later, racism is still at work. I, I might have thought maybe 20 years ago it was done, but I remember playing in a basketball game. It was an over-35 league. Over-35 is a euphemism for slow, can't jump, or shoot. <laughs> anyway, we're getting ready for one of our games. We had a pretty good team. We were pretty competitive. About half our, our players were black. About half of them were white. This particular game, our, our, our black players, just for whatever reason, because they're family persons and jobs and work, etc., didn't show up. And one of the other players, a white guy, walked over to half court while we were warming up and said to me, well, I don't see you got any of your ends, and I'm not going to say the word out loud. None of your ends are here tonight. You might get to play, Miles. I said, I, you can't use that word. You just can't use that word. He shrugged, said, ah, whatever. Walked away. Oh, it was 20 years ago, but we've come farther, haven't we? In the last 20 years, haven't we moved forward? I'm not so sure. For evidence, you can go to my wife Julie's Facebook page. And look at a story that she posted yesterday or Friday afternoon. It's a story from here in Columbus of an NBC TV reporter whose husband, who happens to be African-American, was walking in a neighborhood just the other side of Fifth Avenue, out walking with his two-year-old son, an iconic image in an iconic neighborhood. And somebody yelled out at them one word. It starts with an N, and I won't say it out loud. I read a report last week from the Anti-Defamation League that said anti-Semitic acts in the United States of America in 2017 were up 57% over the previous year. In a similar report, the Anti-Defamation League said that anti-Semitic acts on college campuses of all places were up in the year 2017 by 250%. It's 2018. Why did we cry last week? Because we know these words are still needed. We're desperate for this word. It's a word we need to hear again and again. In Dr. King's final sermon, he's quoting Jesus, who's actually quoting Isaiah, Isaiah 61, which you heard earlier. The Spirit of the Lord, be, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the oppressed. Now let's be clear about what he's saying there. When you see that word oppressed in the Hebrew, what it actually means is not somebody who's having a bad day, it's not somebody who didn't get the project done on time. It's not somebody who missed the meeting and therefore got in trouble with his boss. It's not somebody who's had an argument with, with their husband or their wife. No, 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 no. This is someone who's been pushed down, shoved aside, stepped on, so that the ones in power and control can get more and more and more of whatever it is they desire. To set the oppressed free in Isaiah's day, in Jesus' day, and our day is to set everyone free to experience the same goodness and blessing that God wants to give to all of the world. Well, Jesus preached this text. It was his first sermon, according to Luke chapter 4. He preached it in Nazareth, his hometown. If you go back and read it in chapter 4, you can kind of hear Jesus, again, re repeating the same text. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And you can just kind of tell in between the lines there, as Luke tells the story, that everyone in the crowd is going, oh, isn't this nice? That's Jesus. It's his first sermon. He's so tall and handsome. Isn't he doing well? 
His, his parents are Joseph and Mary. They must be very proud. Oh, what a, what a nice young boy he is. He's going to be a rabbi. What a great preacher he'll be someday. And then Jesus begins to interpret the text that he's preaching from. That's when, that's when preachers always get in trouble, you know. It's when we do a little bit of interpretation. And he says to them, and you can read this in his sermon, he says, do you remember the story of the widow of Zarephath? She's the one who was helped by the prophet Elijah. She was a foreigner, an outsider, someone who didn't worship the Hebrew God. In fact, she may have worshipped many gods. She was blessed when those in Israel were not. There the crowd murmurs and rumbles. What is he saying? Then he tells a story. Again, this is from the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. He tells another story, a story of Naaman, a Syrian officer, an enemy of Israel, a man stricken with leprosy who is snuck into Jerusalem to find Elijah the prophet where he is, who heals him. And Jesus says, do you see again? He was blessed, the outsider, the foreigner, even the enemy was blessed before those of us in Israel. And what did they try to do? What did the crowd try to do on that day? They tried to kill him. You see, that's how fear operates. When someone comes in and names the issue, fear takes over and runs rampant. We, we've, we've seen this before. I, I imagine you've seen it in your family, maybe at, at work or, or at school. My, my mom likes to talk about the time when I was two years old, not long after my sister uh, Jerry my little sister Jerry was born. As she got older, she would sit at the table with us in her high chair. And when mom and dad weren't looking, I would steal Jerry's food. Mom says, you just did not like having a little sister compete with you, not only for food, but for attention. Every single meal, we had to watch carefully because if we looked away, you'd take all her food away and wouldn't give it back to her. What was I afraid of? Well, I was afraid that Jerry was going to get a little more attention than me. Then a couple years later, my sister Carolyn came along. And I remember, this is one of my earliest memories, around four and a half, thinking, who is this and why have they brought another one into the family? <laughs> and then four years later, my brother David came along and I was worried that I would never get to eat again. <laughs> and in fact, whenever I'm around my brother David, that's still true, just so you know. <clears throat> what, was that, what was that work in my tiny little soul? What was happening? I was afraid. I was afraid that I'd lose my place of power, my place of status, my place of control in the family. I was afraid that somehow my mom and dad wouldn't love me as much anymore. But what I found, especially when I was a little boy, was that my mom and dad had more than enough love for all of the children. That's the same thing that Isaiah and Martin Luther King and Jesus have been trying to say to the world since then. God has more than enough love for all of God's children. And if that's true, and it is, then what God expects is that every one of God's children will have enough to eat, a safe place to sleep, freedom to walk the land. The will of God, because God loves us, is for all of God's children for all of God's children to have more than enough. As part of this, I've been rereading Simon Sinek's amazing book on leadership titled Start With Why. I mentioned it a few weeks ago in a sermon. I'd highly recommend it to you. Start With Why by Simon Sinek. He talks about how you know, some companies use fear as a motivator. And actually, it is a pretty good motivator. That's what was at work in my little soul when I was a little boy. And it still works, in, especially in marketing. Some companies will essentially say, and I'm not going to name any of these commercials, but you've probably seen them, you need to buy this or you might die. Have you seen those kind of commercials? 
you know, where they're basically saying, you really need this, and if you don't get this, then your life is almost not worth living. You gotta buy this car, or this thing, or that other thing, or whatever it is, and there's this motivator that's based on fear, that somehow you're not keeping up with the world. Sinek goes on to say, if that becomes a part of the fabric of our society, of our families, our churches, our politics, what's happening to us? What happens? In fact, he said, when fear is employed, facts are incidental. Do you hear the power in that statement? When fear is employed, facts are incidental. This is no way to live. It's no way to live because when we live like this, we lose sight of the, of the dream. Fear blocks our vision. It blocks our hopes. It blocks our, our desire to see the world that God wants us to live within. It's fear that needs to be pushed aside so that we can move forward. At the end of, of, of Martin's sermon on that night in Memphis, he says, I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. I might not get there with all of you, but I believe we will one day get there. And I am fear, I'm not fearing any man, he says. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And then he collapses. He falls down off of the pulpit into the arms of one of the clergy standing behind him. You could just see in his face and the emotion and the power and everything that he brought into that, that, that singular moment. He brought everything he had. He gave it all. He knew his life was in danger. He knew there were death threats, but he wanted his people to hear. He wants us to hear that when we leave fear behind, when we fear no one, our faith will be more than enough to stand up even in the face of death itself. The dream was alive. If we can leave that fear aside, our dreams will carry us forward. That's why this sermon is titled, The Spirit of the Lord is Upon Us. This word from Isaiah, this word that, was, that inspired Jesus, this word that was given to Martin Luther King is also given to us. You see, there's something brilliant at work in the prophet Isaiah's writing. 20 chapters before Isaiah 61, back in 42, he gives this ambiguous proclamation that one day God's spirit, God's ruach it is, will be inspiring to someone. And this one will be a prophet, and this one will carry this word, word forward. It's, it's beautiful and brilliant in its ambiguity, because 20 chapters later, this one we call Isaiah is inspired by the call. He receives it, and he accepts it. 500 years later, Jesus does the same. 2,000 years later, it's Martin Luther King. Today, today I'm suggesting it's us. Today, I'm, I'm saying it's anyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ, of anyone who wants Jesus' teachings to be the guide we have for our lives. If that is true, and I know it is, then the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. I mentioned that word spirit. It comes from the Hebrew word ruach. It means spirit or wind or, or movement. It's, it's an amazing word. You know where you find it? In the earliest book of the Bible, in the very first chapter, in Genesis chapter 1, the world was in chaos, the old writer says, and the spirit, the ruach, the wind of God, the wind of heaven blew across the face of the earth and the chaos was replaced by the beauty and the power of creation. What Isaiah is saying, what Jesus is saying, what Martin is saying is, is this same spirit is alive and well today. This same spirit is there calling all of us to move forward in faith, to allow whatever chaos we're feeling at home, at work, at church, in the world to be transformed by the power of God's love and grace. 
given to everyone. For there is no perfect fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear. You see, when the dream's alive, when the fear is left behind, we can move forward in a faith that maybe we've never experienced even in our own lives. Maybe you've seen it at work. I, I know about a church in Chicago. It's, a, it's an interesting little church. It has a mixture of races and backgrounds, some that are very rich, some that are very poor, others, others who are white, some who are black, and different ethnicities, all kinds of folks in this little congregation. And one day, somebody came to the pastor and said, Pastor, I'm, I'm really worried about our neighborhood. There just seems to be violence everywhere. And, well, some of us, we'd, we'd like to hold a prayer vigil. And so there kind of was a little movement started in the church, and they decided we're going to have a prayer vigil, and we'll, we'll do a prayer vigil. Let's do it all night long. We'll pray all night long that something will be done about the terrible violence just right here in our own, own neighborhood. Well, the, the, the pastor met with the other pastors, and then they met with the church board, and there are a lot of concerns and worries. Is it safe? Should we hire a, a guard? Should we bring in some off-duty police officers? What should we do? Is this really something we should be doing right now? And, and the word got out that there was a discussion about whether or not they should do this prayer vigil, and one of the poorest members and one of the oldest members of the church came to the pastor, 90-year-old African-American woman. She came to him and she said, now, you know, I just got to tell you, some of us who live over there in the projects, we ain't got the same education you got. Lord knows we ain't got the same energy that you got, you younger folks especially, but there's one thing we got and that's the power of prayer. And we will come down here and we'll pray all night. We'll just stay here all night. We'll just keep praying all night because frankly, we don't sleep anyway, so we'll be here. And we will pray and we will pray and we will pray and we will believe together that God's spirit will work among us and we will bring a difference. We will make a difference in our neighborhood today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day until finally the work is done. You see what happens when the dream becomes reality, when the faith becomes empowered by the very spirit of God, the spirit of the Lord is upon us. The dream is alive. The work begins now. Let us open wide the sails of our congregation so that the very wind of heaven can carry us forward in faith toward the world that God's will desires. Amen.